The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Buzz Burbank, news and comment. Just for the record, there is no button. It's Thursday, January 4th, 2017. Happy New Year and thank you very much for your time and for supporting this independent news through the links for my sponsors and the PayPal donate button at buzzburbank.com. It's hard to know which bomb should concern us the most, the nuclear bomb or the bomb cyclone assaulting the U.S. today after 12 days of record cold temperatures. A bomb cyclone, we have now learned, is a storm in which the barometric pressure drops so quickly its strength is explosive. This bomb genesis, as it's also called, is a kind of winter hurricane complete with blinding blizzards powered by property-damaging hurricane-force winds that will bring down power lines and more. There will also likely be flooding along the coast. The East Coast is virtually shut down today, including schools and businesses. Thousands of flights have been canceled. Hurricane aircraft are flying into the storm to gather data as ice and snow threaten the East Coast from Maine to Florida. And as if the past dozen days haven't been cold enough, it'll be colder next week as the bomb cyclone leaves behind temperatures up to 40 degrees below normal east of the Mississippi. 90% of the country has seen below freezing temperatures and about half the country has felt below zero temps, leaving a dozen people dead. And then there's the other bomb. And before we get into who has the bigger one, let us first establish there is no button. It's a figure of speech to cover a complicated process that's slower than most of us have pictured. In the pocket of any U.S. president, there's a card revealing the nuclear codes. That card is known as the biscuit. Nearby is a member of the armed services carrying a briefcase known as the football. Once the codes are entered on the 40 pounds of electronics inside the briefcase, it signals the military to begin launching a nuclear attack and where to aim it so they know which of our 900 nuclear warheads to use. The military then confirms that this was the president's intention. Once confirmed, it takes several hours to put fuel into the long-range missiles that would likely be needed. It's not likely North Korea's leader has a button on his desk, as he's claimed, and there is not one on the desk of the American president. While our government is built on advice and consent between three equal branches, there wouldn't likely be time to involve Congress, much less the courts. The decision to launch may need to be made on a moment's notice with millions of lives at stake. All the more reason, button or not, that a dangerous world got more dangerous with the arrival of 2018. Our latest adventure began with an olive branch to South Korea from North Korean leader Kim Jong-un. He called for peace and stability and dialogue. South Korea said it would welcome those peace talks, and the two countries have already made contact on a special communications line. Perhaps that is good news, tweeted Trump, giving the credit to the tough sanctions the U.S. has placed against North Korea. For the U.S., however, Kim had tougher words. He said his country's nuclear power is now, quote, a reality, not a threat. And Kim said he would continue his weapons development as, quote, a peace-loving and responsible nuclear state. Kim also said the whole territory of the U.S. is within range of our nuclear strike and a nuclear button is always on the desk of my office. That brought a response from Trump on Twitter, of course. I, too, have a nuclear button, he wrote, but it is much bigger and more powerful one than his. And, added Trump, for good measure, my button works. The Freudians among us had a field day while most of us wondered if Trump would be as free with his nuclear button finger 
as he is with the one that takes to Twitter. In the past few days, Trump has taunted the Iranian government. He angered Pakistan so much, its leaders called our ambassador in for a little chat, and he has again angered the Palestinians. Four days into the new year, and Trump has already taunted four governments, one of which we need as an ally, all of which are crucial to peace. As violent protests continue in Iran, Trump's tweets egg them on, followed by more violence. In his first tweet of the new year, Trump accused Pakistan of lies and deceit, accused it of harboring terrorists and threatened to cut off aid. We need our air bases in Pakistan to fight ISIS. Trump also threatened to cut off aid to the Palestinians after calling Jerusalem the capital of Israel, when in fact the city is shared by both countries. The world, including the Middle East, has gotten less stable and more dangerous in a year just four days old at the small but mighty fingers of Donald J. Trump. Just two weeks ago, the vast majority of countries in the United Nations voted to condemn the United States for Trump's decision to recognize Jerusalem as Israel's capital and for his Twitter threat to cut off aid to countries voting against it, even our allies. Off with their aid, Trump seems to be shouting a lot lately. Even our closest allies voted against us. Britain, France, Germany, and Japan. Canada politely abstained, as did Australia. Israel is happy with Trump, however, very happy. It is building a new train station in Jerusalem and naming it after Donald Trump. Behold the power of Trump here in the States. Between Christmas and New Year's, the President of the United States declared, I have the absolute right to do what I want with the Justice Department. Trump does have authority over the Justice Department, but under the Constitution, a president's power is not absolute, and no one is above the law. It was a way of saying he could arrange the firing of special counsel Robert Mueller if he wanted. It was a way of saying he could stop the investigation into his campaign's suspected conspiracy with Russia to tip the election. And it was one of two dozen lies and exaggerations that tumbled out of Trump during an upbeat 30-minute interview at Mar-a-Lago. Although Trump does not have the absolute power he claimed in that interview, it's a big deal that he thinks so or says so. He also told the New York Times reporter he thinks Mueller will treat him fairly, but quoting Trump, I've stayed uninvolved with this particular matter. He did, however, say 16 times in that interview there was no collusion. He said Democrats in Congress have absolved him of collusion, which is completely untrue. Trump again bemoaned Attorney General Jeff Sessions' decision to recuse himself from the Russia probe and then wished out loud for the kind of loyalty Eric Holder had for Obama. Although Trump did not call for the investigation to end, he said the sooner it's worked out, the better it is for the country. It makes the country look very bad, he said, and it puts the country in a very bad position. On his return to Washington, Trump took to Twitter after a report on Fox News about apparent carelessness with classified material by former Clinton aide Huma Abedin. Trump, who had just claimed he controls the Justice Department, called on that department to jail Abedin and to investigate James Comey, who led the FBI when it launched the investigation into connections between the Trump campaign and Russia. It was a bit surprising to read in that Times interview that Trump believed Mueller would treat him fairly, especially since Trump's supporters in Congress and Trump himself have been hammering away at the FBI, the Department of Justice, and the Mueller investigation. Just days before, on Christmas Eve, Trump had tweeted criticisms of the FBI, its Deputy Director Andrew McCabe, and then-FBI Director Jim Comey. McCabe, 
is retiring soon. A bit mysteriously, at the age of 49, Trump tweeted that McCabe is, quote, racing the clock to retire with full benefits. He again called the former FBI director Leakin James Comey. Trump even made an issue of the reassignment of the FBI's top lawyer. New FBI director Christopher Wray has moved out James Baker to move in a legal advisor of his own choosing, a typical move for a new FBI director. Wow, taunted Trump. FBI lawyer James Baker reassigned. Baker had been falsely accused by Republicans of leaking news of the Steele dossier. The reporter who published that dossier says he didn't get it from Baker. But the accusation was part of an orchestrated attack on the people investigating collusion between Russia and the Trump campaign. The Trumpers in Congress have feverishly tried to discredit Christopher Steele's dossier on Trump and Russia. And now it turns out the dossier sprang from one of their own. The person who hired Steele's employers to start the Trump dossier is a campaign donor for Republican Congressman Devin Nunes. Nunes is one of Trump's fiercest supporters on Capitol Hill. He's also the head of the House Intelligence Committee, where he has put most of his effort into discrediting the Russia investigation that's being conducted by his committee. Nunes had been sidelined from the Russia probe while he was under an ethics investigation. Now that his fellow Republicans have cleared him of any ethics violations, Nunes has turned up his assault on the Mueller probe. Nunes has repeatedly made end runs around his own committee to rush to the aid of Trump even when it didn't work out. And he's repeatedly blocked Democrats' attempts at getting answers. Even other Republicans now see Nunes' defense of Trump as reckless and disturbing, but it's clearly part of what appears to be a coordinated attack on law enforcement that's been egged on by Trump. Trump supporting Republicans on the Hill have also tried to discredit all the Russia investigations by saying the FBI's case was built on that dossier, which they claimed was really just Democratic propaganda. But we now know that's not true, that some of what's in that dossier has been proven true, not propaganda. And we now know that contrary to Republican claims, the dossier is not what launched the FBI's investigation after all. We now know that the FBI investigation into Trump-Russia began with a tip from foreign intelligence. An Australian diplomat perked up when he heard what Trump campaign advisor George Papadopoulos had to say one night in a London pub. Papadopoulos had reportedly been drinking heavily when he told the diplomat that Russia had political dirt on Hillary Clinton. Three weeks before that, Papadopoulos had been told that Moscow had thousands of emails that would embarrass Clinton. And two months after that night in the pub, leaked Democratic emails started showing up online. Papadopoulos has since pleaded guilty to lying to the FBI and is now a cooperating witness in the Trump-Russia investigation. So, the FBI probe did not start because of the Steele dossier after all. It began when Australian intelligence informed the Bureau that a drunken Trump campaign aide had bragged that the Russians had dirt on Clinton. The dossier reportedly did contain some things the FBI had already learned on its own. And now, the former Wall Street Journal reporters who hired respected former MI6 agent Christopher Steele have confirmed that it was not his dossier that launched the FBI's Russia probe. They say their firm has never contacted the FBI. They say Steele got word to Senator John McCain after the election when he learned that Russia had worked to help elect Trump, something he saw, something Steele saw, 
as a crime in progress. They say the report is nonpartisan, that dossier, paid for at first by a conservative newspaper and then later by the Clinton campaign. They say they stand by the dossier and the man who wrote it. They say they also did not give the dossier to BuzzFeed, which published it. Steele's employers say they wish BuzzFeed hadn't printed it, especially since it so far only served as ammunition for Republican attacks on them, Mr. Steele, and the dossier. They call Republican investigations into the dossier fake investigations. So the top executives at Fusion GPS, the company that hired Steele to study Trump's finances, say Republicans have known since August when the two men testified for 21 hours about how the Steele investigation was conducted and why they believe every word of it is true, including the part about the hookers. They say they told Congress that the dossier was just part of a much bigger investigation into Trump's finances. They say they told the lawmakers about Trump working with a wide array of dubious Russians in arrangements that raised questions of money laundering. But congressional Republicans haven't talked about any of that, any of those 21 hours of testimony that they've known about since August. Instead, Republicans have continued to push their conspiracy theories about a deep state coup, despite what they've been told by the people who hired the man who wrote the dossier. They have not released the transcripts of Fusion GPS testimony, even though it's already been redacted for public release, and even though the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, Chuck Grassley, promised his constituents at a town hall meeting he would support a committee vote on releasing those transcripts. Now Grassley says that's off. The Republicans have not released the transcripts. Even now, Judiciary Committee Chairman Grassley is shifting the focus, pressuring that research company to come back and testify again publicly, even after the 21 hours they've already endured behind closed doors. Instead, Republicans continue to peddle their theories about a conspiracy to frame Trump. Meanwhile, quoting the founders of Fusion GPS, the public still has much to learn about a man with the most troubling business past of any United States president. Congress, they say, should release transcripts of our firm's testimony so that the American people can learn the truth about our work and, most important, what happened to our democracy. But even as the Russia investigation progresses, the Trump-publican attacks continue. Florida Congressman Francis Rooney recently called for a purge at the FBI, admitting later, I'm not the most nuanced political person. Still, Rooney says he's concerned that the FBI and Justice Department, quote, whether you want to call it deep state or what, are kind of off the rails. There is now a clear pattern of Republican attacks on the Russia investigation. Texas Republican Louis Gohmert calls Robert Mueller bad news. He would love to get Trump's scalp, says Gohmert, only to be contradicted later by Trump himself. Gohmert said he thinks Mueller has not been fair. Gohmert also says good riddance to retiring FBI Director Andrew McCabe, saying he can't go fast enough. And Gohmert called the Justice Department's investigation a coup. McCabe testified last week behind closed doors to the House Intelligence Committee for 16 hours. The grilling was often intense. Frustrated Republicans tried to get McCabe to talk about the Trump dossier, but McCabe gave them nothing. McCabe was also asked about his conversations with James Comey about Comey's meetings with Trump. Republicans on the committee may have regretted asking that question because then McCabe confirmed that McComey had told him of Trump's request for loyalty. In his testimony, McCabe corroborated Comey's claims that Trump asked him to let the Flynn investigation go, confirming that Comey had told McCabe about that request soon after it was made. 
That makes now three top FBI officials who have vouched for Comey's claim that Trump was pressuring him to drop the criminal investigation of Mike Flynn. The other two are Comey's then chief of staff, Jim Rybicki, and Comey's then top legal counsel, the now reassigned James Baker. All three of those men are lawyers. All three are FBI and Justice Department veterans, and all three have national security experience. And now, Trump supporters may have found a new way to fight the Mueller investigation in court, or at least try to. Former campaign manager Paul Manafort is suing Robert Mueller for exceeding his authority by making his investigation so broad, and Manafort's also suing the Justice Department for hiring Mueller in the first place and giving him such broad authority. Manafort says the crimes Mueller's investigating have nothing to do with the campaign. Manafort's lawsuit not only isn't expected to succeed, it may give new fuel to the Mueller investigation. And when it comes to Mike Flynn, we have gotten a glimpse now into what the president knew and when he knew it. We now know that Trump knew from the very start of his presidency that his national security advisor had probably broken the law. Just days after Trump moved into the White House, White House attorney Don McGahn was researching federal laws. There are records of this. He looked into the Logan Act, which bans U.S. citizens from negotiating with foreign governments, as Flynn had done. He also investigated the laws about lying to the FBI. We know this thanks to records turned over to Mueller by the White House a few months ago, records that also show McGahn told Trump about his concerns at the time. That Trump knew this much this early strengthens the obstruction of justice case against Trump. Despite the concerns about Flynn expressed by others, Trump kept Flynn on as national security advisor for nearly another month as Trump and other White House officials continued to defend Mike Flynn. In those days, Trump called Flynn a wonderful man and a good guy, even though he knew. These days, Trump and his supporters are calling Flynn a liar now that Flynn has flipped to testify for the prosecution. And these days, the White House describes Mike Flynn as a former Obama administration official, even though Obama himself had advised Trump not to make Flynn his national security advisor. White House counsel says lying to the FBI is why Flynn was fired, eventually. The Washington Post, meanwhile, has learned that Trump's legal team plans to paint Flynn as a liar who's trying to cover for his own transgressions in the event that Flynn does implicate the president or his aides in wrongdoing. On Christmas Eve, Trump repeated his claim that the evidence of collusion is fake news, retweeting the CNN logo under his foot in a pool of blood. But in the midst of all that pushback from Trump and congressional Republicans, the Mueller investigation forges ahead, and its territory is expanding. Reliable investigative reporter Michael Isakoff says Mueller's team has already interviewed staff members from the Republican National Committee, meaning the investigation has now reached into the Republican Party itself. Mueller's reportedly focused on the RNC's digital operation on behalf of Trump, which worked with the Trump campaign in targeting voters in key swing states. And Trump's son-in-law, who ran the campaign's own digital operation, has just hired a crisis management firm, a sign that now Jared Kushner is expecting to also face criminal charges. The feds are looking into a $285 million loan to Kushner from Deutsche Bank, which has allegedly laundered Russian money. 
The Mueller investigation, meanwhile, has already led to four indictments, one of which hit Trump campaign manager Paul Manafort, two of which have resulted in guilty pleas. As mentioned earlier, besides Mike Flynn, campaign advisor George Papadopoulos pleaded guilty to lying about his contacts with Russians, claiming they had dirt on Hillary Clinton. And on the subject of money laundering, the FBI is asking officials in Cyprus for any financial information they have on another alleged money laundering bank, this one no longer in business. Owned by two Lebanese brothers, this bank, once known as the Federal Bank of the Middle East, was forced out of business in 2017 thanks to sanctions from the U.S. government. The FMBE Bank is now also a target of Bob Mueller as he continues to follow the money connected to Paul Manafort, who has so far pleaded not guilty. And back on Capitol Hill, the House Intelligence Committee is inviting testimony from Corey Lewandowski, the campaign manager Trump hired when Manafort had to go after reports of him being paid by a Russian-backed political party in Ukraine, the committee's also inviting testimony from former White House aide Steve Bannon. An invitation, of course, isn't the same as a subpoena, and lawmakers in the House of Representatives don't officially go back to work until next week. But now all three men have spoken publicly about their time with Trump. The biggest blow came from Trump's former chief strategist Steve Bannon. In a new book about the infighting in the Trump White House, Bannon calls Trump Jr.'s Trump Tower meeting with Russians treasonous, especially since Jr. never reported the Russian overture to the FBI. And Bannon says he'd be surprised if Jr. didn't march at least some of the Russians up to his dad's office that day. Trump Sr. was in the building at the time of that meeting. Bannon says there's zero chance the president didn't meet them. Bannon also says the collusion part of the Russia investigation will focus on money laundering, and quoting Bannon, they're going to crack Don Jr. like an egg on national TV. It is not news Bannon and Trump Jr. didn't get along. It is news that Bannon is talking about that and more. This time, the president did not respond on Twitter. He issued a written statement to reporters in which he claimed, quote, Steve Bannon has nothing to do with me or my presidency. When he was fired, wrote Trump, he not only lost his job, he lost his mind. Trump was said to have been furious over Bannon's quotes and ordered his lawyers to send Bannon a cease-and-desist letter threatening a lawsuit accusing Bannon of violating his confidentiality agreement. And then on a radio show two hours later, Bannon called Trump a great man. Republicans will pay for their loyalty to Donald Trump this year when Americans return to the voting booth to decide which party controls Congress. Two Republicans on their way out of Washington say the Republicans could easily lose their grip on both the Senate and the House, partly for that loyalty to such a narrow base as Trump's, and partly for the party's treatment of women, gays, minorities, and immigrants. By and large, we're appealing to older white men, and there are just a limited number of them, says outgoing Arizona Senator Jeff Flake. A fellow Republican in the House agrees, my party says Pennsylvania's Charlie Dent, is going to experience losses. I tell my colleagues, be prepared for the worst. It's going to be a very tough year. The recent results of special elections across the country, even in the conservative South, back up these Republicans' concerns. Both men are concerned their party is focusing too much on Trump's narrow conservative base, which is shrinking. And despite Republican criticism of and distraction from the Mueller investigation, far more Americans approve than disapprove of Mueller's work. 
and a wide majority of voters disapprove of how Trump has dealt with the investigation. A majority don't think Trump's been truthful in his public statements about that investigation. And that was before a Washington Post analysis that showed Trump had made 1,950 false or misleading statements in his first 347 days in office, which was Tuesday. That means that since taking the oath, the President of the United States had publicly lied an average of five to six times a day. The number has grown since Tuesday. And voters are finding means to vent their frustrations in ambitious and creative ways. Nationwide protests were planned. Even carpools had been arranged in case Trump managed to get Mueller fired over the holiday break. And Trump's Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin got a special delivery for Christmas, a gift-wrapped box of horse manure. The card read, we're returning the gift of the Christmas tax bill. It's bullshit. Signed, warmest wishes, the American people. The man behind the prank risked his job by making himself known and taking full responsibility. He posted it on Facebook, which of course features his name and his face. Quoting Robbie Strong, no disguises, no fake names, totally owning this one, adding, you're only powerless if you do nothing. And speaking of doing nothing... While the news cycle alternates between progress in the Mueller probe and the politics against it, Russia continues its cyber meddling in U.S. affairs, including the recent Senate race in Alabama. But Russian mischief is not just limited to elections. Moscow has been working online to discredit the FBI, to attack America's free press. They loaded Trump's FCC website with phony messages in support of the decision to kill net neutrality, even when 83% of Americans were opposed. Disguised as Americans, Russia has even targeted Republicans when they speak out against Trump. Russia has already attacked Senators Lindsey Graham, Jeff Flake, Bob Corker, and John McCain. It was Russians behind the boycott of Keurig after the coffee company pulled its ads from Sean Hannity's show on Fox. We know this by tracing the Twitter accounts linked to the boycott's hashtag. And it means the Russians are messing with our companies and even our economies in addition to messing with our democracy. And to this date, the United States has done virtually nothing to stop these attacks. Ironically, the Russian government has delivered a warning to the U.S. for the U.S. not to meddle in their upcoming election, the likely re-election of Vladimir Putin. And Trump has now shut down his voter fraud commission, the one he set up to find the three million undocumented aliens he says voted illegally for Hillary Clinton, giving her the win in the popular vote, which still bugs him to this day. Trump never provided any evidence to back up his claim, and state election officials across the country couldn't find any. The White House has resistance from the states, and their lawsuits and their refusal to cooperate made it pointless to continue Trump's unfounded investigation. Trump calls for some good old global warming, the end of the President's AIDS Council, the new laws of 2018, and more after this. And just in time for the new year is the best gift you didn't get. Heller Bluetooth earbuds from tweakedaudio.com. The Hellers are wireless to hook you up with your favorite songs, phone calls, and podcasts like this one. And the Hellers stay in your ears with five hours of use and 100 hours of standby time between USB charges. The Heller has a built-in mic, a storage pouch, and comfortable gels in three sizes. Tweaked Audio's wired earbuds come in a range of colors. You can even get buds in sets of two or three. And Tweaked Audio earbuds just sound better. You certainly can't beat the prices for this level of quality guaranteed. 
and the shipping is free anywhere in the world. Because everything does sound better on Tweaked Audio Earbuds, you can get an extra one-third off their already great prices if you check out the code BBNC at tweakedaudio.com. Thank you for supporting this news through tweakedaudio.com, my other great sponsors, and through the donate button at buzzburbank.com. Mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the fairest of them all? It had to sting a little, especially after being ignored in the choosing of Time Magazine's Person of the Year. For the 10th year in a row, the Gallup poll finds Barack Obama, the most admired man in America, 10 years in a row. Not Trump, Obama. It had to sting more when the most admired woman of the year was again Hillary Clinton for the 16th year in a row. In fact, no person, male or female, has ever dominated that title like Hillary Clinton in a poll that's been taken every year since 1946. Clinton and Obama have earned admiration that exceeds and endures above all others. Trump came in second among the men, even though he's president now and Obama is not. Melania Trump made the top five among admired women in fifth place after Michelle Obama, Oprah Winfrey, and Senator Elizabeth Warren. Did he say these things, and does it matter whether he did or didn't? Back in June, Trump got angry when he heard how many immigrants had gotten visas that year. He was frustrated about losing lawsuits over his Muslim travel ban. He was frustrated by the protesters and even criticism from members of his own party. Six people who were in that meeting have all confirmed for the Washington Post what Trump said next. When he heard that 15,000 people had come from Haiti, Trump grumbled, quote, they all have AIDS. When he heard 40,000 had come from Nigeria, he said that once they had seen the U.S., they would never, quote, go back to their huts in Africa. The White House strongly denies that Trump said those things, but few Americans believe that denial. Quoting one Nigerian-American, unfortunately, it is all too believable that this is how our president speaks behind closed doors because his very public policies have been driven by racism and hatred. In other words, whether Trump actually said these things or didn't, it's entirely believable to most Americans that he would. So did he say it? And does it matter? On the subject of immigration, it's a standoff between Trump and the Democrats in Congress. The Democrats want to bring back DACA, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program. It appears Trump can go either way on DACA, but what he does want is a wall and a few other things to cut legal immigration. The Democrats want better border security, but do not want a wall, and they say that what Trump is proposing is an ultimatum and not the compromise he had said he was offering. The Trump administration is, according to the New York Times, considering a plan to separate parents from their children when families are caught entering the country illegally. As it stands, families stay together while it's decided whether they will be deported. They stay in family detention centers until their court dates come up. The Trump plan would send parents to adult facilities and their children to juvenile shelters or place them with, quote, a sponsor. A policy has been to keep families together, knowing they'd be separated at the border, made migrating families turn to dangerous smugglers to get them into the U.S. Salon.com's Bob Seska is still on holiday, but he returns this evening on the Realm Network, and I will rejoin him there on his show on Tuesdays. 2017 included a devastating October 
with three mass killings here in the U.S. Eight people were killed and 11 others hurt when a man in a rented truck mowed down people on a bike path in New York City. Just before that, 26 people were shot to death in a church in Sutherland Springs, Texas. And October 2017 began with the deadliest mass shooting in modern U.S. history when 58 people were shot to death and hundreds were injured by a sniper in Las Vegas. The year itself ended with gunfire. On New Year's Eve, a 37-year-old man in suburban Denver had argued with another, and it made a lot of noise. A neighbor called the sheriff's office, describing 37-year-old Matthew Reel as having a mental breakdown. Police found no evidence of a crime, however, so they left the scene, only to return after a second complaint about the noise. After being given a key, sheriff's officers entered the man's apartment, only to be shot. One of the deputies died, four others were wounded, along with two civilians. Reel had allegedly fired over 100 rounds in what appears to have been an ambush. A SWAT team arrived and killed the gunman. Matthew Reel had a recent history of tremendous anger toward law enforcement. We do not yet know why. And with just 20 minutes left on the new year, a 16-year-old boy on the Jersey Shore used a semi-automatic rifle to kill his parents, his sister, and a family friend. The boy was arrested and now faces four counts of murder we do not yet know why. Police in Troy, New York, have arrested two people in connection with the deaths of a family of four. Two more people died over the weekend in Long Beach, California, when a gunman opened fire in a lawyer's office. And back in Las Vegas, two security guards were shot and killed at a small hotel and casino. It's not the heat, it's the humidity. Although we're in the depths of winter now, the ice caps continue to melt, the ocean water gets warmer, and storms, including winter storms, get more severe. Also getting hotter, the hottest days of the year. The hottest places on Earth will get even hotter as the coldest places get less cold. But scientists at Columbia University say the greater threat to human health is the humidity the heat brings with it. There are places all over the globe where humidity could become more than just oppressive, the Amazon, certainly, but even the southeastern United States. They're predicting the kind of heat and humidity we've never experienced before by the end of this century. It's harder to picture when the country's in a deep freeze as it is now, but this increased heat along with increased humidity could make it impossible to work outside, not just difficult, but dangerous and even deadly. People already find it difficult to work in 90-degree heat. Turn up the humidity and all the sweat in the world won't cool you down. And the physical toll of that wet heat can lead to heat exhaustion, rashes, cramps, and even strokes. But we could use some good old global warming, according to an over-the-holidays tweet from Trump. Facing the coldest New Year's Eve on record, the presidential thumbs clicked out the words, perhaps we could use a little bit of that good old global warming that our country, but not other countries, was going to pay trillions of dollars to protect against. Bundle up, said Trump, with another exclamation mark. Like other Republicans, Trump has confused weather, which is what's happening now, with climate, which is the overall behavior of weather over many years. So while record cold temps are being recorded in parts of the U.S., the average temperature of the planet has gone up a degree in the past 20 years. Trump's tweet is a throwback to 2015 when a Republican stood on the Senate floor with a snowball to argue he had proof the earth was not getting warmer. Confused or just cynical? Of course, Trump once called climate change a hoax perpetrated by the Chinese, who now lead the U.S., by the way, in the development of solar technology. 
In fact, Trump has tweeted his skepticism about climate change for the past eight years, tweeting about it more than 100 times. And although Trump has withdrawn the U.S. from the Paris Climate Accord, states, counties, cities, and corporations across the country are pledging to meet or beat the Climate Accord's goals for curbing man-made global warming. A climate scientist at Yale University calls Trump's latest tweet scientifically ridiculous and demonstrably false, but his views are supported by the men Trump's chosen to run the Interior Department, the Energy Department, and the head of the Environmental Protection Agency. The tweet also, again, disregards the people of Puerto Rico, half of whom are still without power more than three months after Hurricane Maria, fueled by global warming. Trump's EPA chief, Scott Pruitt, meanwhile, has just eliminated seven Superfund sites, places where soil and water have been contaminated by extremely hazardous materials. Among the sites no longer being isolated or monitored, a landfill in Massachusetts where soil and water had been contaminated with radioactive material less than 20 years ago. The groundwater may still be contaminated at sites in Minnesota and Alabama where benzene was supplied by a train wreck. Omaha lead in Nebraska contaminated the soil there with lead. There's a spot in Missouri where some company buried drums full of hazardous materials. All of these places and more are now open for building homes and businesses under Trump. Small wonder more than 700 employees have left the EPA since Trump took office. 700. And this mass exodus has significantly helped Trump achieve his goal of shrinking the department to the size it was when Ronald Reagan was president. And who needs scientists for a Chinese hoax anyway? Of the 700 EPA workers to leave, over 200 are scientists. Nearly 100 are environmental protection specialists. Nine were department heads and dozens of EPA project managers and lawyers. Most left out of disgust that their years of study and public service were no longer needed because this new EPA seemed to be working against its own purpose. More have abandoned their life's work at the EPA when they heard Republican operatives were trying to get hold of employee emails that might be critical of Trump or the EPA chief, Scott Pruitt. And those who have left are not being replaced. Their experience and their expertise are gone, apparently forever. And those who haven't left on their own will likely be forced out as Trump campaigned on a promise to scale back the EPA so severely that only, quote, little tidbits would remain. Over at Trump's Interior Department, they've made it a bit more acceptable to kill birds. Under Interior Secretary Ryan Zinke, the department has reinterpreted the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. No longer can bird lovers use that act to go after the energy companies that routinely kill large numbers of birds. Oil and gas companies do their share with pollution, but the wind and solar companies also take a toll on our feathered friends. Birds get covered in oil, whacked by windmills, and electrocuted. The Obama administration's interpretation of the act allowed for fines and jail sentences for bird killers. The Trump administration says the rule was really only supposed to apply to hunters. The Interior Department lawyer who drew up this new interpretation, interestingly enough, worked before this for the fossil fuel moguls Charles and David Koch, the Koch brothers, who donate heavily to Republican candidates and causes. Of course there is pushback. The attorneys general of eight states, led by New York's Eric Schneiderman, have filed lawsuits against Trump's EPA 
for not protecting states with cleaner air from the nearby states whose pollution drifts or blows across state lines. New York is joined by Connecticut, Delaware, Maryland, Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, Rhode Island, and Vermont in this clean air lawsuit against the Trump EPA. Sure, Pennsylvania got all the media attention with its nearly five feet of snow, but they didn't tell you about what happened in a part of New York State that's so far north it makes upstate look like downstate. In the middle of nowhere, just a few miles west of Lake Ontario, is the town of Lorraine, which got six feet of snow. It literally enclosed the small home of a local woman. With six feet of snow against her door, and for miles beyond that, the woman was trapped in that small home until she was rescued by the volunteer fire company. Thousands of Americans, meanwhile, are being held prisoner by a virus. Now spread to three dozen states, the influenza virus is taking a serious toll. Three times as many people have died this year compared to last in San Diego, eight in Kentucky, seven in South Carolina, and a dozen in North Carolina. The flu had only killed four people nationwide by this time last year. Six of this year's 11 deaths in California were elderly victims, and the elderly are the most likely to get their flu shot. So is the shot working? Quoting a Kaiser Permanente doctor, those things make us concerned we're going to have a lot of sick people. If you have the flu, stay home. Cover your coughs and sneezes with the pit of your elbow. And everyone, wash your hands frequently. Of course, the main health stories of 2017 will be the top story of this year, the opioid addiction that controls millions of Americans. An addiction to one or more of heroin, codeine, Vicodin, morphine, Oxycontin or Percocet, Dilaudid and fentanyl. An addiction that's killed over 64,000 Americans more than the AIDS epidemic of the 1990s. As with AIDS and other diseases, these deaths are preventable. The opioid epidemic is now considered the main reason U.S. life expectancy has shrunk for two straight years, a dip the likes of which we haven't seen since a pandemic in 1918 of influenza. And about AIDS, for the past 22 years, under presidents of both parties, there's been a presidential advisory council on HIV-AIDS. Trump has now fired every remaining member of that council, so at the moment, it only exists on paper. A handful of AIDS advisors quit shortly after Trump took office. They left behind a letter that said Trump doesn't care about AIDS. The disbandment of the president's AIDS council comes just as new research suggests it may be possible to completely destroy a person's infection. 2017 also brought the degradation of Obamacare by both Trump and congressional Republicans. Together, they succeeded in accelerating their prophecy of an imploding Obamacare, even if they did fail to repeal it. But in the meantime, the Affordable Care Act is about 9 million customers strong, a surprising number of people considering the shorter sign-up time and the cutbacks in the promotion of the marketplace and in the staff that handles it. Not even higher premiums caused by those Republican efforts kept people away from Obamacare. Americans made it clear they wanted and needed the Affordable Care Act. Nearly 9 million signed up this year, even after efforts big and small by Trump and congressional Republicans to chip away at that law, even removing its financial foundation, the individual mandate that required everyone to have coverage or pay a fine at tax time. The minimum wage went up this week in 18 states, no thanks to Washington or, or corporations. 
As happens every January 1st, new laws went into effect. Under these new laws, New Jersey police will now have to get special training before handling sexual assault cases. North Carolina is adding how to handle a traffic stop to its state driving manual. It's for motorists' advice. California now prohibits its officers from enforcing federal immigration laws. Men and women who work for the state of New York will get up to eight weeks of paid family leave for a birth and adoption, caregiving for a family member, or for helping a family member who's stuck on assignment overseas for the military. Public officials in New York State can now lose their pensions if they're convicted of a felony connected to their work. In Tennessee, school buses will be more carefully monitored and regulated after a crash that killed six children there two years ago. From now on, those drivers will have to be at least 25 years old and they must complete a bus training program. Also new in Tennessee this year, barbers are now allowed to make house calls. Illinois schools for 6th through 12th grades are now supplying free feminine hygiene products for the girls' restrooms. Corn is now the official grain of Illinois, and August 4th is now Barack Obama Day there, but nobody gets the day off. Thanks, Obama. And then there's weed. Home growers in California are now limited to a dozen plants at their homes for recreational use or 24 plants for medical. And marijuana goes on sale today in San Francisco after the new law that legalizes recreational marijuana in the Golden State. The retail availability of weed, however, in California is sparse as officials and entrepreneurs figure out how to make it all work. Still, nearly four dozen stores got licenses and opened for business with hundreds of people lining up for it on New Year's Eve. California is now the sixth state and the biggest state to legalize recreational pot. A worldwide chocolate shortage, music milestones, and Florida's looking for mermaids in the third and final segment up next. I'm once again asking you to do as much of your shopping as possible through my Amazon links at buzzburbank.com. You land right on your very own Amazon page. You get the same great prices as always. And if you believe in what we're doing here, it's very important you go to buzzburbank.com, click on my Amazon link, and bookmark the page that comes up to make it one of your favorites. And whether you're already a Prime member or just shopping Amazon, bookmarking and using that link delivers a small commission to this podcast at no extra charge to you. Amazon has nearly everything you need right to your door and in two days or less for Prime members. Plus, you get Amazon Prime Video, which comes with the Prime membership along with music and books and more. Please, use my Amazon link if you make purchases for your office, school, church, or some other organization. Now, if my Amazon link is not right for you, you can also support this free news by clicking on the PayPal button just below the Amazon button in the upper right corner at buzzburbank.com. Regular listeners remember the recent stories about Tesla's new zippy little sedan and its nearly as zippy semi-truck and about how those trucks are being bought in big batches by big companies here and in Europe. Well, again, there's more. Elon Musk says his Tesla company now plans to build a pickup truck. Not just a pickup truck, but one that rivals the famed Ford F-150. Maybe bigger, says Musk. He says this has been on his mind for five years, and quoting him, I'm dying to build it. Stay tuned, as there always seems to be more. What there might not be more of is chocolate. In fact, there's some concern that the cocoa bean that gives us real chocolate is in danger of extinction. No more beans, no more chocolate, because of climate change. 
More than half the world's cocoa is grown in Ghana, along with Africa's Ivory Coast. The fear is it'll be impossible to grow there by 2050. The soil dried out by hotter temperatures. For the rainforest conditions that cocoa trees need, farmers would be forced to move to the mountains where there is less growing space. All of this while worldwide demand for chocolate grows. An agribusiness expert in Britain says, quote, we could be looking at a chocolate deficit of 100,000 tons a year in the next few years. Another new report in the journal Nature shows that about one-fourth of the planet will be in a permanent drought if the world doesn't meet the targets set in the Paris Climate Accord. Passings and passages over the holidays. Queen Elizabeth has knighted Ringo and a Bee Gee. Knighthoods have been awarded to Sir Richard Starkey, who played drums for the Beatles as Ringo Starr before launching a solo career, and also knighted surviving Bee Gee Barry Gibb. Barry's late brothers, Morris and Robin, were granted their knighthoods posthumously. By contrast, Sir Paul McCartney was knighted 20 years ago and this year made $132 million on a three-dozen city tour that sold nearly a million tickets in nine months. He got $23 million for a show in Tokyo. Eminem, meanwhile, has just set a new record for the most consecutive albums to debut at number one. Eminem's revival now tops the Billboard 200, as did the Marshall Mathers LP and a half dozen others. Rose Marie, the actress best known for her comedy genius on The Dick Van Dyke Show, left us at age 94. Born in 1923, she won a contest at age three to appear on one of the earliest films with an audio soundtrack. She went from being baby Rosemary to having her own network radio show on NBC. On TV, she played a comedy writer and later occupied a box on the Hollywood Squares, earning three Emmy nominations over the years. The laughs she brought live on in those classic reruns. Still alive at 95, however, is comic book hero Stan Lee after his birthday a week ago today. Lee had a lot to do with the creation of the Fantastic Four, the Hulk, Iron Man, the X-Men, Spider-Man, Doctor Strange, and more. He still makes cameo appearances in every Marvel Comics movie, and the current president of Marvel Studios says so many more cameos to come at 95. Speaking of movies, The Last Jedi is the top movie in North American theaters for the third week in a row, earning another $52 million on New Year's weekend. Jumanji, Welcome to the Jungle, is in second place with $51 million this week, and Pitch Perfect 3 is number three. For previews, theaters, showtimes, and tickets, please hit the Fandango link at buzzburbank.com. The holidays fade, but they leave behind some warm and fuzzy stories. When a three-year-old cat named Raja got separated from her family three years ago in Florida, the Tuttle family soon realized they would never see Raja again. And that fate was sealed when the Tuttles moved to Virginia. And then just in time for Christmas this year, someone brought a six-year-old Bengal mix to the SPCA in Georgetown, Delaware. The SPCA detected that an identification chip had been found in Raja, which led to the locating of Raja's owner, even in their new home in Virginia. So the Tuttles went over the river and through the woods to Delaware where they were reunited with their long-lost kitty and just in time for Christmas. But we can top that with the story of two men who have been friends for 60 years. They've been best friends, in fact, since they were in the sixth grade. And for the first time in those 60 years, they finally know why they like each other so much. They're brothers. Brothers from the same mother born 15 months apart. 
Alan Robinson was adopted, and Walter McFarlane never knew his father, so they both signed up for Ancestry.com to find out where they came from. Walt says the results were a shock, but that now it makes sense. This is the best Christmas present I could ever imagine, says Al, adding, I don't know how long it's going to take for me to get over this feeling. The way to stop a bad guy is a good guy, and or a nine-year-old with a pellet gun. In Kokomo, Indiana, on Christmas Day, young Larry Larimore was waiting for his dad in the pickup while dad was inside a convenience store. And when a strange man suddenly opened the driver's side door to steal dad's pickup, the boy says, I pulled out the pellet gun and pointed it to his head. The thief quickly abandoned that Dodge Ram for a nearby Chevy Trailblazer and took off in that instead. By the time dad got back to the boy, he realized the guy who tried to steal his truck had just driven off in the trailblazer. So Dad, the owner of the Chevy, and the kid took off in the Dodge Ram, chasing the truck thief, who eventually crashed, allowing police to catch up and arrest him. But we digress from the nine-year-old with a pellet gun aimed at a guy's head. But stopping a bad guy might not involve a gun of any kind. In Yuba City, California, on Christmas night, an out-of-towner, Visiting his elderly parents had stopped into Wendy's for dinner. And then he saw a man come in wearing a bag over his head. So I kept an eye on him, says Daniel, and then I noticed he had a knife in his right hand. Dan says the bag man cut to the front of the line and ordered the cashier to give him the money. Naturally, someone in line complained about the slow service, prompting the grumpy robber to growl, she'll take care of you in a minute. And that, says Daniel, is when I brought the chair down on his head. And then Daniel chased the robber out of the store. Dan says he had only one thought in his head, that he wasn't going to let this robber ruin anybody's Christmas. There was guacamole all over the highway in Texas. Actually, it was flaming avocados. An 18-wheeler flipped over on I-35 around Waxahachie, Texas, spilling 40,000 pounds of Mexican avocados. And then the truck caught fire. It's a loss we can barely afford since the price of that healthy fruit has more than doubled as demand increases and weather plays havoc with production. The wreck in Texas closed the northbound lanes there for about three hours. Officials say there was no environmental threat because avocados. Pennsylvania's Mary Horomansky got one of those too-big-to-be-true electric bills that make the news from time to time. But instead of, say, $284, the bill was not for $284,000, as you might expect in a story like this. The bill wasn't even for $284 million. The bill was for $284 billion, B as in boy, billion. Quoting Mary, we had put up Christmas lights, and I wondered if we'd put them up wrong. A spokesman for the electric company says he doesn't recall ever seeing a bill for billions of dollars. The company spokesman says somebody must have put a decimal point in the wrong place. Gee, do you think? The giant penis was only there for a few days. It appeared on Christmas Eve, towering up the side of a four-story building on New York's Lower East Side. But the graphic mural made the people and businesses along Broom Street uncomfortable, so... Two days after Christmas, the building's landlord had the mural covered with a new paint job. The female artist who painted this detailed portrait says her work is often about not feeling ashamed of your body. I usually paint giant vaginas, she says. In fact, there's still an abstract one by her around the corner on a five-story building. 
Here in Florida, we're looking to hire more mermaids. The Wikiwachi Springs State Park says there'll be auditions on January 13th to fill three new positions on its mermaid squad. That squad, at full strength, includes 17 mermaids. And looks have very little to do with who gets the gigs. It takes a very special swimmer to be a mermaid, a woman who is stronger than most, who can swim with and against the current in a 300-yard endurance swim within the allotted time and then be able to tread water for up to 15 minutes. Oh, and they have to be comfortable with swimming underwater in a tail that binds their legs together to make it look easy. And if you can do all that, then you get a face-to-face job interview to make $10 an hour as a mermaid who's also an employee of the state of Florida. And finally, this past week, a newspaper in China reported that a woman had caused a traffic accident by stopping at what she thought was a red light. It was actually a monkey's buttocks. A golden monkey who'd escaped from a nearby circus was perched on that arm that hangs over the street where traffic signals are mounted. He was scrunched up on that pole, his backside facing oncoming traffic. The woman stopped when she saw the red light that turned out to be a bright red rear end. No one got hurt because of the woman's sudden stop, but she did get rear-ended. I'm Buzz Burbank. Thanks for listening and supporting the shows and sponsors at buzzburbank.com. I'll be back next Thursday with another Buzz Burbank news and comment. The preceding presentation was brought to you by The Realm Network.